the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Last week, wildfires spread across Canada, leading to negative impacts on air quality in the Northeast United States and Michigan. But while pictures of New York in an orange haze were very eerie for us here in the state, what does it mean for Michigan? We'll talk to meteorologist Stephanie Hanksba to find out what happened and what it means for us. We'll also check in with City Council member Gabriela Santiago Romero about what she hopes to do to protect Detroiters from unclean air and water. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today. WDET. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson. If you saw the photos or have friends in New York, you were alerted to something very strange. Last week, New York City was covered in an orange haze. That's because the city had some of the worst air pollution in the world due to smoke that came south from more than 100 wildfires burning in Canada. Over the past six weeks, Hundreds of wildfires have spread across that country, causing mass evacuations and the burning of millions of acres. Because of this, Canada has been at National Preparedness Level 5, meaning that country has mobilized all of its resources to fight fires. But those forest fires haven't just impacted the American Northeast. Meteorologist with the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy recently issued air quality alerts for high levels of fine particulate in the air. That's in part because a grayling wildfire in northern Michigan burned more than 2,400 acres last week also. The fire was so bad, parts of I-75 were closed and grayling residents were forced to evacuate for a time. While fires haven't continued much in our state, Michigan is at a very high or extreme risk of fire due to intense heat and low precipitation. A little bit later in today's show, we're going to speak with District 6 Detroit City Councilwoman Gabriela Santiago Romero about how residents in her district are managing poor air quality and then discuss a new bill that would help restore or would restore net metering for solar projects in the state. But before we get there, we want to discuss the wildfires and air quality. What is the origin of these wildfires in Canada? How has it impacted Americans and specifically Michiganders? And what should we be doing to protect ourselves from poor air quality and prevent wildfires from happening in the first place? To talk about this, we have two guests with us. First to start off, Stephanie Hanksba, a meteorologist in the Air Quality Division at Michigan's Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy. Stephanie, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. We also How have. Are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'd be Good. better if we didn't have as much uh, air quality concerns, which we'll get to yeah. in a moment. But I also want to introduce our other guest, Dr. Chris Stockdale, who is a wildland fire, uh, who is the wildland fire research and extension scientist at Natural Resources Canada. Dr. Stockdale, welcome to Detroit today as well. Thank you very much. Stephanie, we will get to you in a moment, but I'm going to start off here with Dr. Stockdale, since he's at the scene of the crime, so to speak. Uh, How did these wildfires even get started in the first place in Canada, and where are we at with them right now? 
It's a funny way to put it that I'm at the scene of the crime because it's a pretty big scene. Um, it started like, well, I mean, this fire situation that we're in was becoming apparent that it was a risk coming up uh, well, like, you know, at, in the late winter. I mean, we could see that we'd had very, very low precipitation, not a lot of snow across the whole country, several, you know, long extended kind of deficits of moisture for several years leading up to this. Um, and uh, sure enough, in late April, early May, fires started erupting in Western Canada, in Alberta and British Columbia. Uh, there was a large heat dome event that was sitting over the region, bringing very high, unseason unseasonably high temperatures. We were 10 to 15 degrees above, like 10 degree to 15 degrees Celsius above seasonal norms at that point in time, really low humidity and high winds. And uh, that coupled with human activity on the landscape led to many fire starts, most of them likely accidental human starts, some lightning ignitions. Um, and then as this heat dome event spread across or moved across the country into eastern Canada, like we started seeing, you know, fires erupt in Saskatchewan, some in Manitoba. Ontario was originally spared, but is getting pretty hot now. Uh, and then saw an enormous explosion of lightning-driven fires in the province of Quebec just a week and a half ago, which is the smoke event you guys are referring to largely down there. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about it because while conditions can be ripe, and you did mention a lot of human starts probably accidental, is this something where one fire occurring can have a cascading effect on making it more likely for others to occur? Or are these just a bunch of independent things that happen to be popping up at the same time, causing us to have this experience right now? That's a kind of a complex question to answer. I'll try to do it as briefly as possible. Um, in these really extreme conditions in high wind-driven events, which is what we've been seeing largely in uh, Quebec and Alberta, Saskatchewan, British Columbia, when the fires ignite, um, the control measures are very limited. The intensity of these fires is such that direct attack like from humans on the ground is impossible. It's way too hot. People can't get within hundreds of meters of these things. I mean, the heat exposure would be fatal. So we can only deal with like indirect attack methods such as aircraft dropping water and retardant. However, even that at a certain intensity begins to fail. Just the, the spread of the fire is so quick. Yeah. Um, that it that it jumps over any measure you try to put in the ground. So yes, a single fire can lead to many, many more because they start kind of generating their own wind patterns, spitting out embers, you know, hundreds of meters to kilometers in, a, uh, in advance of themselves. So one fire breeds many fires. But the conditions, especially like the lightning explosion fires that we've seen, that we've been seeing in the last several weeks, um, Absolutely. Those are, you know, like we expect kind of patterns of it. I mean, you prime the fuel on the landscape with hot, dry weather, hot, dry and windy weather. It's like setting up your perfect campfire. You know, you've got really snappy kindling on the fire. Those are all the twigs and needles and leaves on the ground, dry grass from last year. And then you've got really dry big wood, too, because of the moisture deficit. So you kind of set up a I mean, imagine your perfect campfire, and now imagine scaling up your perfect campfire to cover millions of hectares of land. Mm. 
Very hairy. And then send a go ahead. And then send a lightning storm over top of that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, those conditions would be pretty rough. And as a result of lots of things happening, we're having an impact even here in Michigan, someplace that uh, I don't think a lot of us would have expected to be impacted. But uh, I guess air quality doesn't understand. Uh, borders. And uh, Stephanie, we've seen impacts here in Michigan with fires. Can you tell us what the impact has been for us here in our state? You know, the impact here in our state, this has been a a very unique situation um, and one we really haven't specifically been in here in Michigan. You know, it kind of started for us on um, Sunday, June 4th, where we issued our first air quality action day for the Upper Peninsula. That was the area that was first affected from the wildfire smoke, smoke moved into the Upper Peninsula um, from the Northeast. And um, kind of on Saturday, the day prior, we had seen levels starting to increase and then looked again Sunday morning. And and to be honest, looking at satellite imagery, it was quite interesting because you could just see these waves of smoke plumes coming down on a Northeast wind. And um, we knew it was going to hit the Upper Peninsula. So we did issue, like I said, an action day for Sunday, the um, twenty or the 4th of June um, to... Um, make people aware of that because we really wanted to get the word out there that there was going to be deteriorating air quality. And then down in the lower peninsula, as we, we kept, you know, close eye definitely on these fires. And for us last week, um, I shouldn't say thankfully we were under high pressure, but it made the forecasting of the plumes a, a bit easier in the sense that satellite imagery did such a good job at picking up these plumes. So we could kind of see when they were were dropping down, and they started moving into the Lower Peninsula on June 7th, last week, Wednesday. It was pretty much Wednesday through Friday of last week that we saw our highest pollution levels. Um, like it was explained from the wildfires up in up in Manitoba and some in Ontario as well. And those plumes of wildfire smoke, um, that brings down a pollutant we call fine particulate matter, or PM 2.5, that is the pollutant that was very um, elevated during this this time period of last week. Well, we saw levels. Go, oh, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. No, please. No, I was going to say our, our levels for this um, this pollutant, fine particulate matter, reached the unhealthy for sensitive groups range. That is the USG range. That is the level that we start issuing air quality alerts because when levels reach this um, this range, is really when people who are sensitive to increased air quality start seeing the effects of air quality. So again, we really just want to get the message out there that there is high pollution so people can do what they can to protect their own health. Yeah. And so let's get into what those things are specifically. uh, Where are the areas hardest hit and the areas that people should be concerned about? And then you also mentioned for people to protect their health. What recommendations would you have for people to say, hey, if this is of concern to you, you should be looking at it. These are things you should consider doing to lower the impact on your life. During this episode, we did have um, the worst air quality that we saw here in Michigan actually ended up being kind of from the thumb area on southwest to about the Grand Rapids Muskegon area on south. So that's where we saw the highest um, elevated levels of fine particulate matter um, during that time period across the state. And really things that, that we're asking asked people to do is, um, you know, especially the sensitive groups, people with lung disease, including, you know, asthma, heart disease, any type of respiratory illnesses um, should really limit prolonged exertion outside. Um, because those people with pre-existing conditions are going to be the ones affected first and the most affected. Um, you know, ways people can help reduce and eliminate um, 
you know, potential increased pollution locally in your area would be, you know, outdoor burning to stay away from that. Um, also to reduce any vehicle trips or idling as much as possible. Those are things that we'd ask people to do during, I guess, maybe a normal increased pollution episode. This, where it was particularly from wildfire smoke coming in, there isn't much you can do to prevent that. So again, we are just asking people to really, you know, limit exertion outside. One thing that's interesting with fine particulate matter is that is not necessarily just an outdoor pollutant. Last week, we did have cooler temperatures um, that it, it wasn't overly hot outside. So a lot of people had windows open. Well, when you have the windows open, you can bring that air. The air yeah. you know, does come into your home. Right. So that was one thing that we are getting the word out to. And in situations particularly like this um, with wildfire smoke, you may want to consider keeping the windows closed to prevent that um, polluted air to come into your home as well. And really just to keep um, you know, abreast of the situation, to pay attention to air quality levels, so you know what to do when levels, or you do know when levels get get elevated. So you can really um, do what you can to protect your health. And I know there were some some schools we had heard of too, which is a good thing as well. If, if levels are really high and elevated, to even you know um, reschedule outdoor activities or or stay inside instead of spending that time out, outside. And and one other thing with fine particulate matter too. In the episode that we were in last week, when we have ozone, ozone is a fairly common summertime pollutant in the state of Michigan, especially across the south and the southeastern portion of the state, where that you you can, you know, protect yourself by not exercising maybe in the morning or waiting till later in the afternoon, because levels are primarily a, an afternoon, early evening event, and then they subside in, in the overnight hours with a lack of sunlight. But fine particulate matter is not like that. We, we saw levels that were high um, throughout the whole entire day. So it's also not something that you can really say, okay, go exercise in the morning, that you would be fine then and not in the afternoon. Really, it was something that was elevated during the whole um, calendar day and right. is not fluctuating necessarily um, by the time of day. Right, right. We're speaking with Stephanie Hanksba, meteorologist uh, with Eagle here at, uh, on 101.9 WDET and Dr. Chris Stockdale. I want to hear from you as well. Uh, if you're out there, have you been impacted by the poor air quality in the state? And what has that experience been like for you? What concerns do you have about this event that's happening right now? You can give us a call, 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019. And we can work you into the conversation. Before I loop you back in, Chris, one more question for you, Stephanie. Is there an experience? Uh, period of time that you're looking at us being worried or on a heightened alert right now? How long should people be looking into and monitoring uh, this situation with our air quality? Um, in all honesty here, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Um, here, here in Michigan, I would have to say, you know, our, our air pollution has improved over the past few days. This last week, the cooler temperatures coming in, some precipitation has really helped out as well. Um, however, you know, looking at extended forecast maps, it does look like next week we move into, again, a drier, warmer period, which really um, 
the rain that we've received is is kind of short-term improvement. You know, if we do get into another period of dry, uh, warm conditions, um, that potential wildfire danger is going to be high again. And, and really, it's something we pay attention to here at Air Quality um, daily because we want to pay attention to the wildfires, where they are, when these smoke plumes are going to be moving into our state so we can do what we can to issue these air quality alerts to um, alert the public of them. You know, and before uh, we move on, uh, Dr. Stockdale, I do have to loop you back into the conversation because you're seeing what the impact is like for folks there on the ground in Canada. For those of us who aren't uh, so familiar, if you can let us know what it's looking like for you and what the strategy is going to be moving forward to hopefully reduce these kind of impacts. Um, well, the forecast right now, as uh, Stephanie just referred to, I mean, in Western Ontario, we are seeing a long, like a continued drying trend going there. So uh, the fire danger is indeed rising in the part of Canada that's probably closest to you. Um, and we're expecting increased fire activity in that region. The fires in Alberta, like throughout Canada right now, uh, really the only thing that's going to put these out is extended rainfall. Mm. Um, suppression operations from aircraft and personnel are really just on the mop up, you know, kind of cleaning up the edges of fires where the fire's already gone through, trying to put up hot spots so they don't reignite and flare up again. So we're waiting for some really good weather. In Alberta, it's looking a little bit positive. We see in central Alberta, we're seeing a significant amount of rainfall coming right now, actually. It's pouring rain in my yard, which is a tr- tremendous relief. But up in the north still, there is it's very hot and dry with very little precip in the forecast. Quebec, there's very little precipitation in the forecast. So, I mean, this we're expecting a significant extended fire season carrying through the summer this year. Mm. And Dr. Stockdale, uh, before I let you go then, does that mean that we could have more smoke in Michigan and in the Northeast Corridor based on what you're hearing from us? Like this is something that could keep propping up this summer. I wish I could tell you that you don't have to worry about it, but uh, it's looking, I mean, it all depends on atmospheric circulation patterns too and which way the wind is blowing. We will be generating a lot of smoke. Where we choose to send send that is at the mercy of the uh, atmospheric flow patterns. I think the last time I heard that was at a Snoop Dogg concert I attended (laughs) back in the West Coast, but we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Dr. Stockdale, I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us here on Detroit Today. No worries. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Stephanie, we're going to keep you on across the break and have you join Councilwoman Gabriela Santiago Romero as we continue our look at how Detroit is handling air pollution right now here on 1019 WDET. neighborhood your community your voice join the conversation on 1019 WDET
It's 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson on this edition of Detroit Today, where we're taking a look at our air quality here in Michigan, especially given the wildfires that have been blazing in Canada, having an impact not only on northeast, on the northeast corridor of the United States, but also right here in Michigan. Uh, And we're going to continue that conversation. Also hear from you for any questions that you have, like if you've been impacted by poor air quality in the state. Let us know what that impact has been like for you, what that experience has been like for you, or also what questions or concerns you have about wildfire safety. To help us get into that, we're continuing our conversation with Stephanie Hanksba, who is a meteorologist in the Air Quality Division at Michigan's Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy. And Stephanie, one of the things I wanted to ask you was you mentioned when we're in this current state that it's not a great idea necessarily to open your window to let some of the air in when uh, air quality is so poor. But one of the things I was thinking about with that is does air really know a boundary right air's getting into your house somehow uh i would think as a lay person am i just recycling bad air in there or why would it be better for me to keep the window closed how does that protect me in terms of an air quality situation when we have the concerns that we have right now well by keeping the windows closed it's just stopping that outdoor air from from coming in and potentially if you have excuse me sorry about that um if you do have some type of um, filter system, I guess if, if you do have air conditioning that that could um, help pull some of the pollutants out of the air that is being recircul- recirculated within the home. Um, so, you know, it's just it's just one one other means that you could can do to help keep um, the pollutants and the the poor air quality from coming inside your home. Got it. So the filtration system in our air conditioning would be sufficient to help uh, reduce yeah, these impacts. It, could could potentially help you have to filter filter some of that out very good very good and right now to join us on the conversation we also have district six city councilwoman gabriella santiago romero council member santiago romero welcome to detroit today so much for having me. Hey, thanks for being here. I know that this is an issue that even before uh, we've had these uh, impacts because of the Canadian wildfires that you've been interested in for your district specifically because of poor air quality that your residents have to deal with. Can you describe for listeners who not might not be so familiar uh, why you've already had concerns about air quality in your district and what you're hoping to do to prevent that? Absolutely. And thank you for the conversation and the question. This is something that residents in Southwest Detroit District 6 and 4217 have been dealing with uh, the notion of the air that they're breathing is quite literally harming them, oftentimes killing them. Um, And that is because of the the, the industry that we have. Uh, We have a ton of tough traffic um, in District 6 and residents living in Southwest Detroit's Anyone living within 500 feet or that equates to two blocks um, in a heavy truck industrialized area are two to three times to get asthma. Um, There has been a recent uh, report from the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America that puts Detroit um, at the top spots uh, for a most challenging place to live with if you have asthma. I have heard of the residents that are moving into the district, adults in their 30s and their 40s who want to move in for the excitement of the city, um, of all the changes and, and the growth, um, who within a year get asthma. Um, and that is something that is 
um, heartbreaking yeah. and scary to know uh, that as, as, as we are building and creating a beautiful, um, fun city where we are inviting more people, we need to remember that people here have always dealt with the impacts of, of industry. And as we are trying to, 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 to really grow our, our base and, and our residents here, we need to also remember that we can't bring them into a place that, that is unhealthy as well. Yeah. And councilwoman, um, so we're going to take a, absolutely councilwoman, we're going to look into a little bit more of that and potential solutions also. But before I loop you back into the conversation, I did want to ask you, Stephanie, about uh, the way this air quality uh, impacts us, what, the ways Michigan is looking to kind of handle this, because this seems to be a newer situation that we're dealing with. Are there any strategies that we have right now in the state that you're aware of, other than hopefully waiting for weather to subside or weather to help us out that we're looking to try to reduce these impacts? No, and unfortunately with wildfire smoke moving in, there's not a whole lot right. we can do. But like I talked about before, you know, there are some things that we can do um, to helping uh, help decrease the likelihood of increased pollution. With fine particulate, you know, in general, it would be, you know, some some um, activities you can do to eliminate air pollution would be outdoor burning right. to to try to stay away from that. I know in more of a, more of a winter t- time thing, right. you know, residential wood burning devices is something that we ask people um, to really pay attention to. But again, that's more of a, a winter phenomenon, not something that I doubt right now people are really using those types of devices. Um, you know, reducing vehicle trips, trying not to drive around as much, um, and not idling when you are in your vehicle. Those are some things for five particulate or um, PM 2.5 that you can help reduce um, or eliminate local um, contributions to increase pollution. Yeah, what I'm hearing from you right now is it's something that we're all going to kind of have to take on and be together in order to help us through this period of time. But speaking of the period of time that we're looking at right now, as we are again talking about air quality here on Detroit Today, 1019 WDET, where you can get involved as well by calling 313-577-1019. While we're talking about that, I kind of am looking at the historical context or wondering about that also, Stephanie. Is this, has there been a period of time that you're aware of previously that we've had to deal with issues like this or is this like a new phenomenon uh, that you've seen in your history I mean what does it look like historically in terms of where we're at with this uh, air pollution with the wildfire smoke event that we saw last week I will say that it's not the first time we've ever been influenced by wildfire smoke um, in our state of Michigan over the past um, few years there have been time periods um, I want to say it was back in maybe 21. Um, the summer, um, we did have a long period of time that um, we were influenced by smoke, but it can be influenced either at upper levels, and that was kind of um, what had happened in that situation. Depending on how far away the fires are, I know that back in 21, they were more up in Alberta, Canada. They're a lot further away. Mm-hmm from our state. And so when it was pushed over our region, it was high in the upper atmosphere. It almost just looked like more of a hazy cloud layer in the upper atmosphere where it made the, you know, very beautiful looking sunsets and sunrises. But unfortunately, you know, that they're beautiful in those different colors because of the wildfire smoke up in the upper atmosphere. But what's different with this particular situation is those fires were a lot closer to our state. Um, when you're thinking, you know, some of the fires were just north, northeast of um, of Sault Ste. Marie. You know, that's not far, really, yeah. from the state. And being closer in proximity, that allowed those um, 
particulates to to come down to the ground level um, a lot easier because they were closer to ground level when they moved over into our region. So this is not the very first time we've ever seen wildfire smoke influence um, our state. However, it is the first time we've had such high elevated levels of fine particulate due to wildfire smoke. Any other increases we've seen, maybe we'd see increases into like the moderate range, um, nothing that um, really came close to the high levels that we saw last week. And yeah. a lot of it, like I said, it has to do with the close proximity. They were a lot closer to our state compared to other times that wildfire smoke had influenced us. You know, we are talking again about the impacts of these air particulates. Uh, before we get back to you, Council Member, I just want to ask uh, you, Stephanie, you had mentioned these uh, air particulates and how you have concerns about it. We've discussed what it means for people who are more at risk, but even for healthy individuals, mm-hmm. how could uh, uh, long-term breathing of these air particulates, how could that show up in our lives and in, in the lives of people who are listening or say, hey, I'm fine, I'm healthy, I, I could probably risk it? Mm-hmm. Well, we... One thing that we we did try to also say last week when we, we were getting the word out is even people that um, generally are not, are not susceptible to increased pollution, we really were trying to um, ask people to still try not to exert themselves too much and do strenuous activity. Anything that would require people, even general um, healthy people, from breathing heavily because these these particulates, fine particulate matter, PM2.5, um, the 2.5 portion of it is the size. I mean, these particles are so small. The width of a hair follicle, um, it's actually even smaller than that. So they're so small, and that's why that they're, they're so bad for, for people, especially with respiratory illnesses, but even the general public, because they're so small they can be, um, you know, breathed in yeah. and into the lungs, and that's when they start causing you know, maybe inflammation, start, um, people start really seeing the effects of these. So even we are asking people that generally have good health, when you have elevated levels that are that high, and we had some hourly levels that were even higher than on our unhealthy for sensitive groups range, but the daily averages did not average that. There were a few hours within the day that levels were, were quite elevated where even people who are gener- usually not susceptible or don't see effects of increased pollution really could have been seeing effects. So we even wanted the general public, just pretty much everybody, just to to be aware and to, you know, if you start, you know, feeling shortness of breath or anything like that, really just be aware of yourself right. and you know your health and, and just to take just to take care of that health and try not to exert yourself too much. Right. But Council Member Santiago Romero, as we bring you back into the conversation for you in District 6, from what I'm hearing from you earlier, this is a lived experience that your constituents mm-hmm. have to deal with on a regular basis. Uh, you've been telling us, how does that show up for you here? And uh, what are the things that you're looking to do uh, with state partners to try to fight this impact on your area in the, the city of Detroit? Yeah, this is this is a daily lived experience. Um, this has been so for for, for generations of, of, of people um, in in District Six and in Southwest Detroit. Um, and quite frankly, uh, it, it it seems to be an unfortunate truth um, to residents now living around Salantis. So for me, um, what I would love to see more um, is is more enforcement. So. Uh, we are our office is working on a anti-idling fugitive dust ordinance, a truck route ordinance, to ensure that we have policies in place and protections and enforcement that would 
allow um, there to be ticketing if there is idling of trucks in our neighborhoods. We hear of these concerns often. Um, we uh, ask our residents, if you're listening to this now, please take a picture, send it over to us. Um, we're working with the city now to use our improved Detroit app to allow you to um, take photos and to report when there is a truck idling in your community. Um, we need to ensure that we have good community benefits when a company like a Stellantis or um, a, a, a another industry is coming into, into the city for the jobs, which we understand we need. We need to also understand that there are people living in the same proximity and they deserve healthy and safe communities. So what are the benefits that the companies can be giving? They can be ensuring that they themselves do uh, sweep cleaning each and every day. The particles that have been mentioned now um, regarding fire and, and, and pollution, um, there, are, there is dust, fugitive dust, that is awful for people to, to breathe in. So when you get the dust, when you have the emissions, when you have the truck emissions, and then when you have the fires, I am incredibly worried uh, for my residents, for myself, who lives right in the, in the middle of, of southwest Detroit now, recently uh, moving into to the community around Clark Park. I, I, I walk out my door, I turn to the left, and I see the off-ramp of the Gordy Howe Bridge, which mm. is very daunting to know that there is going to be that kind of traffic coming in into my neighborhood, onto my block. So there are a lot of policies that we can be setting in place to ensure protection, to ensure enforcement. There are creative um, solutions like ensuring that the trucks that are driving through our streets are hybrid, are clean. Um, there are um, uh, community benefits that industry can, can give, like I mentioned, street cleaning, because there's a lot of dust that happens um, around industry. Uh, they can be providing uh, filters. So we, we talk about filters. They themselves can pay to provide families uh, homes that are living um, in proximity to 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 their um, to their building um, with filters with air filtration. Um, they can also be investing in air monitoring. And another thing that our office is working on um, instantly, I reached out to the health department, um, and this was actually earlier this year, but we got right on it again um, in another conversation around health impact studies. We need to be we need to be capturing data every single day around what the current issue is for us to know what solutions we need to be putting forth. So I'm really hoping that we have this be a line item uh, for the city, that our health department works together with partners like the University of Michigan, Michigan State, Detroit Mercy, Wayne State, whoever wants to join us. We have incredible institutions here um, to be monitoring um, the, the impacts in, in our health, living in industry, especially with climate change as well. You know, I appreciate that you bring that up, Council Member uh, Santiago Romero, because one of the things, thinking about truck idling, right, if you see that, not, not, I don't know how many people would necessarily know that that's uh, an ordinance that would be in mm -hmm. violation. So knowing that you can be the one to report that or things that we can do on the ground right now to kind of help out with this. But another thing that I'm thinking about when I hear your response is just the uh, the tension between you want to increase economic activity in the area. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, for example, the Gordy Howe Bridge, right? Access to um, that kind of transportation. But then also not wanting to have a negative impact on your community. How do we reconcile those differences? You know, things like you meant, maybe mm -hmm. hybrid trucks enforcements. I mean, where do we, how do we reconcile mm -hmm. the, the need for increased economic activity with the desire to mm -hmm. decrease emissions and help out our residents? Smart planning. Let's be smarter. Let's, let's plan in a way 
that ensures protections for residents first. Let's look at our zoning. If we're going to bring in industry in the city, ensuring that there are 100 feet, 200, whatever, whatever data and research shows is helpful to, to, to decrease the impact of industry for our residents, I want to do that. There is a way for us to, I believe, there needs to be, especially in this capitalistic society, if, if, if we're going to be relying on industry and, and, and the growth of it, which I know that we need, we need to also be planning smart and, and putting people's health first. Because quite frankly, if, if we have this industry, if our residents are the ones at these jobs who are also impacted negatively in their health, you are quite frankly impacting your workforce that is now yeah. sick, that is unable to come um, out at and work. We need to think holistically about what this means. And I think it, it goes down to smart planning, look at your zoning. And, and, and quite frankly, in, in, in our society, a lot of these high industrial areas are in black and brown poor communities. So it's environmental racism. We need to also be very honest about what that is because you don't see this kind of industry in Birmingham. You don't see this kind of industry in, in Farmington Hills. Um, and if it's going to be here in our city, we need to ensure that there is buffering in between. We need to ensure that there are benefits that keep our residents safe. Um, we can do it. We just have to have the will um, to, to do so. I'm hearing enforcement being an important part of this conversation, zoning, relooking at that, really smart, intentional efforts at making sure we protect our citizens. Uh, because without your health, man, that's a that's a tough way to continue your life. And uh, that is a very important part of this conversation. That's why I'm glad that we had an opportunity to speak with you. Council member Santiago Romero, thank you for joining us again on Detroit Today. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And Stephanie Hanksba, a meteorologist in the Air Quality Division at Michigan's Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy. Thank you also for joining us on Detroit Today. Yeah, thank you for having me. When we return, we're going to switch gears just a little bit, but continue thinking about things that we can do to help out with our environment, including specifically net metering and solar power. Because as we continue, we're going to look at technologies that can help improve it with State Senator Jeff Irwin and environmental law expert Nick Schreck. Stay tuned as Detroit Today continues. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson on a conversation today discussing the environment, how it impacts you in a multitude of ways. We've taken a look at air quality, but one thing we also know is that in order to create a cleaner environment, Americans and Michiganders need to transition to clean energy technologies. One of those popular technologies is solar power. And to make solar power makes sense financially, one of the things that some states leverage is something called net metering, which is a billing mechanism that credits solar owners for the electricity they add to the grid. In Michigan, net metering was phased out in 2019. Now State Senator Jeff Irwin wants to bring it back in a new bill he sponsored. To talk about this, we have State Senator Jeff Irwin with us to discuss the matter. State, or excuse me, Senator Irwin, welcome back to Detroit Today. 
Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And we also have with us Nick Schreck, who is the Associate Dean of Experimental Education and an Associate Professor at Detroit Mercy School of Law and the environmental expert with the best first name. Nick, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Nick. Great to be with you. Always good to have you both here. But Senator Irwin, since you are the sponsor, we're going to start with you. Can you tell me about Senate Bill 362, which, as I understand, is meant to restore the state's former net metering system? I'm not even sure exactly what net metering is. So let let us all know, what are the things that your bill would do? Yeah, thank you. So I've introduced Senate Bill 362 along with uh, Senator Rosemary Bayer uh, with Senate Bill 363. And together what these bills do is basically solve three problems. Uh, Currently in Michigan law, uh, residents are limited to the size of the system they can put on their home at 120% of their usage. Uh, They are limited statewide in that the utilities can stop allowing people to plug in once 1% of their customers are generating energy on their own. And also the price that residents are paid for the energy they feed back to the grid is greatly suppressed. So our bills are trying to solve those three problems by lifting the cap on the total amount of customer generated energy that can uh, be put onto the grid in Michigan, uh, lifting the limits on the size of the system that people can invest in, and uh, giving residents a fair price for the energy that they put back on the grid. Well, when you say it that way, Senator Irwin, it sounds like a great idea. We already had it. Nick, why, why was this phased out in the first place? Well, I mean, that's probably a question more for our, our utilities, um, Detroit Edison and Consumers Energy. They didn't like net metering because um, it, it can sort of cut into the bottom line depending on the price that they're paying people that generate their own power and sell it back to the grid. Um, and utilities, you know, they make a lot of money by building large infrastructure projects like natural gas-fired power plants or, or coal plants. And, and of course, we know that those are bad for the environment because they're continuing to contribute greenhouse gas emissions and contribute to global warming. And, but they make a lot of money by, by building those facilities and, and you know, bonding it out over time and recovering money from ratepayers. So when people distribute solar power on their own roof and generate their own power, that, that can cut into the bottom line. So my sense, my take on it as you know, sort of an external observer here is that the utility companies hated that metering. They saw it as a, a threat to their business model um, and that they would rather you know, continue to have a monopoly on generating and, and selling power. Um, so net metering is important because it makes it much more economical for individuals or community groups to fund solar panels sell that power they're not using back to the grid and shorten the amount of time it takes for them to recoup their investment. So yeah, that, that's kind of my understanding of, of, of why um, the net metering that we had in Michigan was attacked and why we had you know that change. And then now hopefully through Senator Irwin's bill, we can uh, bring it back. Well, let's get to the man who is sponsoring the bill. I guess you might have had interaction with DTE or Consumers Energy or any of the big energy players, Senator Irwin. How have they responded to your plan? Well, the utilities have generally opposed uh, customers generating energy or anyone other than them generating energy because Nick's exactly right. Uh, These companies exist to create profit for their shareholders, and it's not in their interest to allow anyone else into the monopoly that they currently enjoy. And here in Michigan, we have an uncommon situation where the public takes all the risk and the utilities, uh, we privatize the profits for them. 
And so, you know, the legislature really needs to focus on what's in the public interest here. How can we create a system that still you know, generates a functional grid for everyone, but still but allows Michigan residents to invest in cleaner energy when it makes sense? Well, I understand that. However, oversight of DTE energy does happen through uh, government. Uh, so there should be some impact or oversight that would have a connection to that uh, in terms of response to the public, right? Because they would probably say, well, we're a hybrid, we're public, part public, part private. I do understand the generation of, uh, of profits, but where does that play in? I mean, does the government have anything to do with allowing uh, this uh, net metering to fall off as well? Well, absolutely. And, you know, I think we're very quickly going to get into territory uh, that listeners are not going to enjoy when we start talking about all the regulatory levers that the Michigan Public Service Commission has. But our legislation uh, that restores uh, fair treatment to customer generated power and the legislation that was passed seven years ago that uh, really threw a wet blanket on solar investment in Michigan, uh, those are all bills that are passed out of the legislature. And our utilities are very involved with the legislature and with the regulators at the Public Service Commission trying to make sure that the rules that are put out uh, are going to be functional and a benefit to to their bottom line. And so that's why it's so important that we have legislators that are looking out for the public interest and we have legislators that are saying, look, we've hit this tipping point where now it makes sense economically for a lot of people to stop buying fuels from elsewhere and instead invest in energy generation here in Michigan. And it's good for Michigan because it creates jobs, it saves money. And now that that reality has has come upon us because of the uh, lowering cost and rising efficiency of solar, mm-hmm. we need to get these laws that restrict investment in Michigan out of the way so that we can continue to grow solar jobs and we can continue to put the tools in citizens' hands to make smart investments that drive those dollars back into Michigan rather than to wherever these fuels are coming from. We're speaking with State Senator Jeff Irwin, a Democrat from Ann Arbor and also a sponsor of a bill to bring back net metering to uh, Michigan. Also, Nick Schreck, Associate Dean of Experiential Experiential Education and an Associate Professor professor of Law at the Detroit Mercy School of Law and an environmental expert. We also want to speak with you as well. What do you make of net metering and what do you think would uh, make it easier for Michiganders to have more access to solar power throughout the state? In fact, do you have solar power at your house right now? Let us know what that experience is like by giving us a call at 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019. And we can work you into the conversation. Uh, Nick, do we know what bills like this, how they have an impact on uh, access to uh, solar panels? Do we know uh, if it helps to increase the use of solar panels in other areas? Oh, absolutely. Because when people are making, I mean, it, it's still a significant financial investment to, to put a rooftop solar um, on your home or business. And so looking at, you know, that upfront cost and then how long it would take you to pay it back through either savings on your utility bill or the price that you can receive for selling the power that you generate back to the grid, that really changes the economic calculation. So in states that have net metering programs or that have a really fair price uh, for the 
gener generation of electricity from an individual sold to a utility, you see an increase in rooftop solar because that payback time, the return on your investment is much quicker. And so, you know, if you can shrink that return on investment from 25 years down to 15 years, that starts to look a lot more attractive for people to install this technology. And again, then we all benefit because we've got a more resilient grid. We've got um, more clean and renewable power coming onto the grid. And so it really is a benefit for all of us. It's just getting past that impediment of a very active uh, utility lobby uh, in our legislature. And so again, hats off to our legislators that are pushing for net metering because it really would be a benefit and we would see improvements and increases in the amount of rooftop solar in the state. Is there any concern with rooftop uh, solar, for example, putting more power in the grid, the more uh, rooftop solar panels we have? Maybe someone thinks they can be a profit maximizer and actually earn money by creating power on the grid or something uh, uh, crazy like that. But are there any issues with overloading the grid or how this might affect the stability of our grid if there was a lot more solar panels uh, in play? Nick. Well, it's something that, you know, yeah, we definitely have to, uh, to to look at as far as, you know, w w some of the upgrades we've made already to our grid. And there's actually a lot of money coming into Michigan from the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure bill at the federal level to help us modernize our grid to make sure that, you know, we all have smart meters and that you can effectively manage the flow of electricity from one place to another. Uh, there's been a lot of work going into this, Nick. I mean, there's been a lot of studies and, and we can certainly increase uh, the amount of solar in in this state uh, to a very, very high degree without running into any significant problems. But having smart meters on homes is important because you can you know, actively track that, that power and make sure that we have good reliability around the grid. Um, and so, you know, my sense is, and then talking to people that are experts in this field, is that we have a lot of room to grow here before we run into any capacity limitations as far as grid reliability. Well, with that understanding, then, Senator Irwin, it seems like people are on board with this. Uh, you've reintroduced it. It once passed in Michigan. Uh, do you have the votes to pass it now? Well, I'm not sure we do, which is why it's so important that residents contact their members and let them know what they think. Uh, you know, this is an issue that you know, anytime you're taking on, uh, uh, you know, our investor-owned utilities, they have a lot of influence. And so that's always a great challenge. But one of the things I think people in Michigan are experiencing, uh, which is a real drag on people and our business, uh, our economy here in Michigan, is that we have not just some of the dirtiest, but also some of the least reliable and most expensive power in the country. So we need to give our residents more tools to solve that problem. And the more people that we get investing in solar, which generates energy when prices are at their highest, the more we have a chance to drive down that peak cost of energy and bring our rates down, which are really crushing a lot of residents here in Michigan and hurting business development as well. Well, you talk about business development then, and if we don't have the votes to pass it right now, Nick, we all, already mentioned uh, the energy producers. Are there any other coalitions that are standing in the way or pushing back against passing this, or is it just uh, big energy in the state? You know, it's primarily our utility companies um, that, again, by and large, have a monopoly. In fact, we've seen some large industry groups actually pushing back and, you know, wanting more choice in terms of their power and where they're purchasing power from. Um, you know, you, you're seeing more libertarian type groups come on board saying, hey, you know, if I'm 
a property owner and I want to generate electricity on my property, I should be able to do so and I should be able to get a fair price for that electricity. So uh, you do have a coalition of people that are that are very interested in moving this forward. And, you know, by and large, the, the, the key opposition is our utility companies because they're trying to protect their business model and control over the investments that they, they would like to make into the future. And just one more thing, the senator Please. mentioned, you know, clean power and how, how this benefits all of us in terms of reliability and affordability. You know, to the previous conversation you had about air quality, you know, if we get more solar, you know, rooftop and then also large scale solar arrays in, um, in more rural areas, you know, that means we can shut down some of our dirtiest, most polluting coal-fired power plants and, and those types of facilities that contribute to poor air quality. So, you know, it's not just good for someone who makes that investment to get a better return on their investment in terms of solar. It's also good for all of us because we can shift more quickly to renewable energy and improve our air quality as well as reducing greenhouse gas emissions um, to fight climate change. So, you know, really it's win-win. We just have to get it done. Yeah, Nick, I like that idea, but I just need to know um, how many more rooftop solar panels would we need before we could shut down a coal plant? Like, I mean, what's the scaling there? Well, I mean, really you're, you're talking about what they call utility scale solar sure. where you'd have, many, many acres, like those kinds of facilities in order to generate that kind of power. But, you know, every little bit helps, right. Nick. You know, I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. I mean, you know, if you're talking about a 500 megawatt coal-fired power plant, yeah, that's a lot of solar panels. Yeah. But yeah. Um, we can get there. And, and, you know, combination of solar and wind, you know, we can definitely get where we need to be with more efficient appliances and stuff, too. So, yeah, it, it's possible, my Very friend. Uh, it's just a of, of the will to do it. All right. Well, we're going to have to end it there. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us, Nick Shrek and Senator Jeff Irwin on Detroit Today. Thank you. That's going to do it for us as you're listening to 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Tune in tomorrow where we will continue with another great conversation about our region.